Now on Documentary on News Talk, producer Kelly Crichton looks at how in the 1980s the haemophilia community was devastated by the impact of infected blood products. Please be advised that this documentary delves into sensitive subject matter regarding haemophilia, HIV, AIDS and mortality. This is Tainted Blood. Up until the late 70s, growing up with haemophilia meant living a more cautious life. Physical activities had to be limited and trips to the hospital were frequent for those who suffered from bleeds into their joints. Then everything changed. A new treatment product, which is made from blood donations called Factor Concentrate, could be administered preemptively. And not only that, if treatment were needed to deal with a bleed, this could now be administered at home. I was just starting home treatment and I was getting a bit of independence in my life as well because before going on home treatment I used to go up to the CUH every week, go down to the blood bank, get the factor nine, go up to the children's ward and wait for the doctor to come and I could be waiting two, three hours at that stage. And if I had a bleed, CUH was the port to call. Colm Walsh has haemophilia B, which is also known as a factor nine deficiency. This is the most severe type of the disease, which means he can suffer from internal bleeds that can damage joints and cause pain and distress. His brother, Brendan, was born with the same hereditary condition and they were both treated at Cork University Hospital. Brendan was seven years older than me and there was no treatment at that stage. All he used to do was put ice packs on him and try and get the swelling down. There was no injection, there was no nothing. Brendan nearly died a couple of times, I know that for a fact. Brian O'Mahony is Chief Executive of the Irish Haemophilia Society, commonly referred to as the IHS. He also has haemophilia B. The most common type is haemophilia A, which results from a factor eight deficiency. Brian has been an integral part of the society since the early 80s. Life expectancy in the 50s and 60s was very poor. I would have had two older brothers who died in the 50s from bleeding in early childhood. Uh, so growing up in the 60s without access to treatment, you were always a catastrophic or life-threatening bleed away from death. So it was difficult. Uh, and also the quality of life was poor because you were getting a lot of bleeds with no treatment. The life expectancy was probably 20, 30, maybe 40. And then when the factor concentrates became available from the 1970s, that really revolutionised treatment because for the first time you could actually give an accurate dose of the missing factor. You could give it in a hospital or home environment. And crucially, in the home environment, you could start treating a bleed as soon as it started so you were avoiding the damage. Margaret Dunn has two sons with haemophilia. She's been a long-term member of the IHS, a volunteer to start, and in time came to work with them. Derek, that's my eldest son, he didn't get too many, he had too many problems with the bleeding until he was about seven or eight, and then he started to, you know, when he was a bit more rough and ready, he started to have a few accidents, and so I was in and out of Harcourt Street with him every so often. In the 70s, it was a good time for people with haemophilia because the factor was there. He got his factor whenever he needed it and everything appeared to be fine. 
And my other son wasn't born until 1985, so things had changed a bit by then. People were learning more and more about haemophilia and the causes of it and the treatment of it. That was the big thing, the treatment. Just get the stuff into us. Like when I remember the amount of factor nine we put into ourselves was phenomenal. And we were glad of it. And we hadn't a clue what was coming down the road. This life-changing treatment were to have much further reaching consequences than anyone could have envisaged at the time. In early 1983, I saw a short piece in one of the laboratory magazines about this new disease in the States. They didn't know what was causing it. There was also some speculation, could this potentially be a blood-borne virus? And I was concerned that that could be a major threat to people with haemophilia. In May of 1983, I arranged a meeting with uh, Sean Hanratty, who was the chief scientific officer of the then Blood Transfusion Service Board, and I expressed my concerns about AIDS, uh, about hepatitis viruses, which were known to be bloodborne, and also the fact that we were importing the vast majority of our factor concentrates. The American blood products were manufactured from pools of plasma, maybe up to 20,000 litres. That's 30, 40, 50, 60,000 donors in one pool. And if one or two of those donors had a virus, then it's in the entire pool. The quality of the donors in the States was not always great. They took plasma from a lot of people who should not have been donating. There were very few exclusions. Plasma donors were paid for their donations uh, and the vast majority of donors would have been fine, but there were clearly then some people who should not have been donating blood. There were prisoners, there were IV drug users and so on who, who gave plasma or blood in order to make some money. Whereas with Irish blood or plasma, you would have anticipated certainly a smaller pool, a lower lower level of risk. The precautionary principle wasn't in place. If there was a risk to the blood supply now, the precautionary principle would say, if you think it's a risk, you've got to act based on the risk. This is the AIDS virus. The bubonic plague of the 80s called the TB of this generation. Incurable and epidemic and potentially as disastrous for Ireland as the famine was. So far, over 500 people have the virus. Over 300 are drug users, 100 are haemophiliacs, 59 homosexuals and bisexuals, and 24 children. And all week, RTE have run a media blitz. There are a lot of people, members of your church, who would say if you obey... Paul Cunningham is RTE's political correspondent and has covered this story for nearly 30 years. The benefits of these concentrates were huge. But at the time, when the blood bank was making this decision, the head of the blood bank was a man called Dr. Jack O'Reardon. And he gave an interview to RT in which he spoke about the dangers of these concentrates, where he said some of them were coming from the United States, where they had a policy of paid donors, and that paid donors had greater risks of things like hepatitis and other bloodborne infections. And he said at the time, on that basis, they didn't believe that that was something they should do. And yes, the blood bank decided to go down that direction. It did import concentrated blood products from the United States. Breedy Gahan was a newly qualified nurse when she encountered HIV and AIDS for the first time. The first job I got was actually in St. James's Hospital on the south side of the city. When I took up the position in St. James's on what was called the top of one, it was the first time I'd come across HIV We all knew very little about HIV and AIDS then. There wasn't social media, there wasn't much on the radio. But to this day, I'll never forget the many young hemophiliacs, but particularly two handsome blonde brothers, twins, who were 
living with haemophilia, but also had become exposed to HIV and AIDS through the imported Factor VIII, and at that time were actually dying of AIDS-related illnesses in the early 1980s. It was so hard to, to look at them and think, gosh, we don't have anything to cure these young men. I mean, it was devastating at the time, soul-destroying. I mean, most of these were young men, you know, just the same age as myself or a bit older. It was at the end of 84, they started developing a blood test. In early 85, they started testing our members for this, and it subsequently transpired that a lot of those with haemophilia A, especially, uh, had been exposed to the virus and had HIV antibodies. We were never made aware of any risks using the blood products. This was a good thing at the time. The first time I heard about it, I heard that the chances are that there would be maybe two people with haemophilia in Ireland who might get it. After that, things moved fairly quickly and we realised that over 100 people had contracted HIV. So that would have been from children right up to teenagers and adults, young men with young children. It took a while to take it all in and just seemed to be something that people really didn't want to talk about. Many of the people in the society didn't divulge to other people in the society, say, that they had been diagnosed with HIV. Yeah, as I remember, there were mostly young men, haemophiliacs, also men who were inter uh, using intravenous drugs and was heroin addict problem at the time, gay men and some sex workers. But it was principally young men of a certain age between mid-twenties and or younger and mid-thirties. And homosexuality was still illegal in Ireland at the time, so many were keeping it a secret. So they had a double secret to keep. And it was really challenging for them. Uh, the stig stigma forced many of them to hide their status, hide their haemophilia to begin with from friends and family. And it was easier for them to say they had terminal cancer. All I could think of back at the time was, you know, empathy, support, try to find out more. There was no Google. And people were a bit nervous. I, I remember some people didn't want to work on that unit, particularly women who were pregnant at the time, because we didn't know how it was transmitted. Were we exposing ourselves? I guess I was young. You feel uh, invincible when you're young. Didn't worry me personally too much, but people who had more experience probably were right to worry at the time, a bit the way people worried about COVID-19 when it started. We didn't know exactly how transmission occurred, who was most at risk or why. And unfortunately, we knew the outlook, terminal, death. There were posters up, death, HIV and AIDS kills, pictures of coffins and skeletons and, you know, not the most appropriate information in terms of educating people about safer behaviours or practices and instilling fear and more stigma. And I stopped telling people I worked with patients living with HIV and AIDS. Because I, I, on, on occasions I saw them back back from me if I happened to mention I was working on that unit. I remember distinctly going to CUH for a huge blood test. And I mean huge, as in we were all lined up outside the 
consultants' rooms, and I was there. Brendan was there, and there was a few other hemophiliacs I knew to see, but I didn't think much of us as such. And then we were called in individually, and I'll never forget the amount of blood that was taken. It must have been two twenty-mil syringes amount of us. I can't remember being informed about anything at that stage. But something inside me said, something's not right, being called in all of a sudden for this big tests. There was no support or social worker or anything around. And I suppose at that particular time, they were still learning. They were trying to deal with what they knew but they didn't know what was coming down, the full extent of it. I suppose at the time, I didn't think much of it. At 12, 13, 14, I was glad of the injection. And as as we were saying, just give me more. If something happened, pump it into me, I didn't mind. <laughs> at that time, looking back now, oh my God, frightening. Obviously then, that's when all hell broke loose. When if they finally, figured out that the connection was there. The Society was a very small organisation. We had no office. We had no staff. We had no resources. I think our budget was about £5,000 a year. The organisation was run by a voluntary board, so it was quite shocking. Suddenly we were, we were looking at a situation where we had a large number of people who had HIV antibodies. We circulated more information and we tried to pull together some peer groups and support groups. You know, more and more people were getting sick and there was also a tremendous amount of fear and anger and guilt. You have to remember that because of home treatment, there were mothers who infused their sons with the treatment that gave them HIV. Through no fault of their own, of course, but there was also a terrible ignorance about AIDS in the general population. So here you had a population of people who had been, for the first time, had available this potentially life-changing, wonderful treatment. And then it turns out that this treatment was actually giving them a virus, which not only could kill them, but meant that they couldn't even discuss this in public because of the stigma and shame and guilt around it. It was an appalling situation. Brendan and myself got the same dose of Factor 9 on the same day in CUH. Brendan was about 20, 21 at the time. He was seeing the doctor on his own. He said to the doctor at the time, don't tell anyone. We didn't know. He got HIV. I didn't. And obviously Brendan made that decision to keep it to himself. And that was his decision. It was a tough one because later down the road it was up to me to actually tell my parents he died of HIV. That was tough. I think the association with um, that people thought that it was your own fault if you got HIV. And obviously for whoever got HIV, it wasn't, no matter what category you were in. But at the time, that was the the feeling. We were, we were on RTE and somebody said to me, I think, week later, I didn't know your son had HIV. And that's not what the programme was about. It was about haemophilia. So it, there was very little understanding. 
the information wasn't still coming from the doctors. It was the Hemophilia Society who were trying to get more and more information out all the time. The support that they were giving to the members at that stage was paramount because there was people in an awful state at that time. There was positive HIV tests coming back and people didn't know what to do. As we went from 1984, 85, 86, it was clear that there was more and more requirement for help, that they weren't getting any help uh, or any government help or support. They needed access to high-protein diets. They had higher costs for going to hospital. There were a whole range of social welfare benefits they required. They, they had no ability to get life insurance or mortgage insurance. A lot of them could not work. So we looked at all of these and thought, OK, there are probably provisions within all of these within the social welfare healthcare system, but pulling them all together would be very, very difficult. So we suggested that the government either pull all those together or set up a trust fund, which we could be involved in administering with the Department of Health to help our members to get through this emergency situation. The proposal was roundly ignored. We had no choice but to mount a political and media campaign to try and get some assistance for them. Here's reporter Paul Cunningham again on how the IHS campaign for support would lead to the collapse of the government and prompt the general election of 1989. In the 1980s, you had high unemployment, you had low economic growth. Effectively, the state was broke. And so there wasn't very much money going around. The safety valve was immigration. The government response to a certain degree was framed by the dire economic circumstances which afflicted the state at the time. The second thing they had was that they decided they didn't want to sort of raise one group of people who were affected with HIV AIDS over another group. So they nearly had this equality of response, which was insane when you consider that people with hemophilia were being given a, a blood product which had been bought by the state, which had been brought into state hospitals, which had been administered by the state into their very arms, poisoning them with this terrible disease. And so it rolled on until the 19, late 1980s, and it was Brendan Howland, the Labour politician, who put forward a private member's motion to try and secure around £400,000 of fund which could be used by people with haemophilia who'd been affected with HIV and AIDS to try and live. And it all culminated in a big vote. And what do you know? Labour Party was in um, opposition. Fianna Fáil had a minority-led government by Charlie Hawley, the then Taoiseach, and the private members bill went through and I remember Rosemary Daly, the administrator of the Irish Hemophilia Society, telling me about how she was in the doil at the time and she was elated, thinking they just scored a big victory. But the then Taoiseach Charlie Hayu returned from Japan, said this was a political manoeuvre, that this wasn't something he was prepared to accept and effectively triggered a general election because he wasn't prepared to do it, saying that the finances of the government were being decided by the opposition and on that basis... He had to take action, which was go to the country. So if you can imagine to be a person with haemophilia, who were looking at a state which was coming up with the bare minimum, and had finally passed it, and then the government says, actually, you're not worth it, and we're just going to pull the plug on it. It must have been an absolutely horrendous time for them. This is Documentary on News Talk, and you're listening to Tainted Blood. The society was set up to support the members. That's the whole ethos, always has been of the IHS from early on maybe bringing children on holidays to give them a break and give the parents a break so everything then changed it was a necessity to set up some more programmes and maybe look for things that hadn't been done before 
because people were feeling a bit desperate, I think. Rosemary Daly and Margaret King, who was a nurse, tried to set up some programmes that would support people who were in difficulty and, and their families. And while this was going on, people were becoming ill and people were dying. So it all had to be managed around that. There was no effective medical treatment for HIV and AIDS at this time, so Rosemary and Margaret came up with the idea of holistic weekends for the members of the IHS, where they could avail of treatments and try to relax. The stigma associated with having HIV had now extended to being a haemophiliac, two diseases that appeared to go hand in hand to the uneducated. Owing to this, many of those affected didn't share their diagnosis or that of their children. So these weekends allowed them to talk to others who were going through the same fear and isolation. For us, all we could provide was palliative care, treatment of the accompanying infections, you know, as, as the immune system is compromised or failing. So the pneumonias, the eye infections, the skin diseases, pain relief, hospice care, really. But the saddest thing was we knew that this was only prolonging life and really wasn't treating the virus. I recall mothers and grandmothers particularly visiting patients. A lot of silence, some didn't cope, some didn't come in to see their relatives. I remember some young men had no visitors. No visitors. They were abandoned. It was a very sombre time. And yet we tried to keep hopeful, no formality. It wasn't run like another hospital unit. Somebody wanted an ice cream, somebody wanted a beer. If they could take anything, if they could eat anything, the oral thrush caused as a result of the compromised immune system was awful and many died from starvation. You know, they could not eat. If anybody said they wanted something, no matter what it was, we'd go home and try to find it, bring it in. Headphones, old Walkmans, anything. An extra blanket. There were people losing weight. They were very thin, emaciated. It was gruelling to come in and find after a shift, if you'd been away or on a day off, that another person had died. And a private funeral never said what the cause of death was. Probably cancer in the obituary notice or the funeral notice. Even the funerals were he held almost secretly. You know, people didn't want to talk about it. The care and consideration Breda speaks of didn't extend to all medical settings. And some IHS members were treated very badly in certain quarters. When I was having my second son in 1985, obviously there was knowledge of HIV. When he was born, there was a sticker on his cot, haemophilia, no contact. It didn't occur to me for a little while, a day or two, that why have they put that on the baby's cot for everybody to see? Because it, it, it was ignorance too, because he, he was a new baby and he couldn't have had HIV. So he never had any of his, his BCG or anything before he left the hospital. I was told to bring him to the Haemophilia Centre. There was a man who went to a hospital. He had been diagnosed with HIV. And the medics who were treating him stripped him, burnt his clothes. They burnt his crutches and they then put him into a sealed ambulance and sent him off to Dublin. Now, if you can imagine, that's the medical response to someone with HIV. 
Can you imagine what it was like for people who weren't aware of what the dangers were? Another story from a woman, her father had contracted HIV as a result of contaminated blood products, uh, got full-blown AIDS and died. And when she was a young girl playing in the primary school playground, if another child would bump into her, they had been instructed by their parents to run immediately to the bathroom, wash their hands, wash their face, any part of their body which had made contact with her. That's the type of atmosphere which was ruling in the 1980s. That's why people with haemophilia were so terrified that they too could be identified as being HIV. There was a terror associated with this. And so not only were they burdened with this life-threatening illness, they were weighed down by this terror that they were going to be found out and that this could have a terrible impact on their family. Hospitals didn't know how they were going to deal with this and how their staff would deal with when somebody had died in hospital. The regulations were that they had to have a body bag. This upset people very much. People were very concerned that they couldn't dress their family member the way they wanted to when, when they died. Rosemary and Margaret felt that maybe they could help the families a little bit by having their family member home, whether it was an adult or a child, to be home for the last few days or the last few weeks when it was clear that they weren't going to survive. And the families found it a great comfort to have Margaret and Rosemary there. They had whatever they needed and when the end came that they could be laid out and dressed appropriately according to what the, the families wanted. Here's Brian O'Mahony of the IHS again. From 1990, really up to the end of the 90s, we provided the critical illness service. At the time, shamefully, they were, you know, when a person with HIV or AIDS died, their remains were treated almost as if it was rubbish. I mean, they were putting in body bags and uh, none of the normal formalities of an Irish funeral were allowed. There were, there were many adults, but there were, there were also quite a few children who died of AIDS. I think it was some sort of consolation to have them nursed at home at the end of their life by people that they, they knew and loved and trusted, uh, and then the fact that the funeral could be more dignified. The critical illness service was a unique one that I'm not aware of any other haemophilia society in the world providing, but it gave great comfort and support to our members in their most difficult days. It is hard to believe such a service would ever have been required, but as Paul points out, it was more than a service. And they didn't just do it once or twice. They were doing it dozens of times all over the country, day after day, week after week, month after month. It was a level of, of love which I think rivals anything I've ever heard of in my life. It was simply extraordinary. And as a story itself, it's one of the most incredible stories I've ever heard in my life. I often think about that. I don't know how Marks and Rosemary did it on an ongoing basis over all the years that they did it. They knew all, all the members. The Haemophilia Society is like one family. I think they felt privileged to do it and gave the families time to be with their loved one. Haemophilia Society were doing their level best trying to keep the information coming. They were dealing with horrific issues at that time. Like, bloody hell, what they must have gone through themselves as in the crew in the Hemophilia Society at that time, seeing people, what was happening to people. I suppose looking back, the doctors at the time should have put a stop 
to the fact they're being used, but there was no other treatment at the time either. And I don't hold a grudge against them because they were doing the best they could at the time as well. We were living a life and it was giving us that bit of independence. I would have taken anything to give me independence to stop leads happening. Like Brendan, obviously the writing was on the wall for Brendan, unfortunately. I presume he tried treatment, but it obviously didn't work. You put your trust in the doctors. And I suppose... At times, we should have spoken up a bit more. Our lives were in their hands too. And Brendan was in a different place to what I was. He was obviously given his diagnosis and he did the best he could. But he did live life like Brendan, only went into hospital before he died, a week before he died. That was it. He was never in hospital before that. Never complained. He was having very bad migraines. They obviously knew in CUH what the problem was, but we weren't being told. Obviously, that was his wishes. And he, in the space of seven days, died. And that was tough. He was in a public ward as well. And because there was protocols, when you die with HIV... And you see, we weren't told any of this as the family. It was a closed coffin. He was put into a bag. And we weren't told why. Um, And that was tough. After the general election of 1989, a Fianna Fáil Progressive Democrat coalition was formed and a £1 million fund was agreed to help infected haemophiliacs. More than a quarter of the Irish haemophiliac community had been infected with HIV. Then, in the early 90s, a new challenge was presented to the IHS and its members. Haemophiliacs were contracting hepatitis C from infected blood products. Although treatable, this condition which affects the liver had far-reaching and life-threatening consequences for many who were already dealing with the horror of HIV and AIDS. I never got told I didn't have HIV. I got told I had hepatitis C because they obviously did the two tests at the same time. It was another layer on top of another layer I had to deal with. I was put on uh, ribavirin and interferon for the, the treatment for the hepatitis C, which was tough going, 48 weeks of treatment. Uh, it was tough. Professor Anne-Marie Farrell is Professor of Medical Jurisprudence at the University of Edinburgh and an expert in the area of contaminated blood scandals. What you begin to see in the late 80s is people are dying and the only treatment they've got is AZT, which is also very toxic. So it's becoming difficult to keep it secret and contained and the horror of the tragedy that was unfolding and the injustice of it for the community, you're seeing a a sort of a groundswell of more activist activity to bring it to the notice of the government, to the medical profession and begin to agitate. One of the fortunate attributes of the society too is, and the nature of Irish politics and that is there. there's that connection. If you've got that personal connection, you can go and have a talk and begin to agitate. And in some other democracies, you wouldn't have that closeness, but there was this groundswell of activist activity around contamination episodes. 
we had a number of our members with HIV who were taking legal action against the Irish state, against the US pharma companies. We were uh, dealing with the legal teams on their behalf. It was going on and on. The costs were going up. We didn't have the funds. Our members were starting to get very sick and dying and I didn't want them to have to spend the last year or two of their lives dealing with lawyers and, and legal cases. So we, we, we made a submission to the government, again asking the government to settle this. Again, it was ignored for several months and that also came down to a point where we had to do again another political campaign, a media campaign. We, we actually went to the point where we realised there were local elections on. So we ran four candidates in the local elections. So I think we really went all out to try and get this sorted out for members. The waiting game is an awful thing. You're waiting and you're worrying whether the kids are going to be all right or your wife is going to be all right. And you're hoping... Every day I hope that you'll get a letter saying that's sorry. Take your time. That upsets you as much as your own illness at the moment, doesn't it? That you're so worried about the financial end of things. More so. I I know I'm dead. Gonna die. That's all right, I can take that. But it's the, um, it's my family. How are they going to survive after I'm gone? You know? That was Jerome Stevens, who, as part of the IHS media campaign in 1991, spoke publicly from his sickbed when he was dying of AIDS. Jerome was a talented poet and sculptor who epitomised the courage and resilience of the haemophiliac community. The night that clip of Jerome aired on Today Tonight, the then Minister for Health, Rory O'Hanlon, finally announced that the government would settle their ongoing legal cases and pay compensation of £8 million. It became very clear to us, very quickly, that the Finlay Tribunal was going to concentrate primarily on NTD and perhaps blood transfusion. It was not going to cover the issues relating to people with haemophilia. We looked at this with some grave disappointment. So we withdrew from the Finlay Tribunal and started talking to the government about setting up an additional tribunal just to look at the haemophilia issues. Now that was a difficult process because they weren't very keen to have a second tribunal. It took over two years to agree the terms of reference for the next tribunal, which was the Lindsay Tribunal. The tribunal that's inquiring into the infection of haemophiliacs through contaminated blood products begins its public hearings today. The tribunal will begin with an interpretation of its terms of reference by its sole member, Judge Alison Lindsay. It will then start hearing evidence. More than half the country's haemophiliacs were unknowingly infected with HIV and hepatitis C. 74 of them have since died. Paul Cunningham reports. Every year we used to sit down at the start of the year and we'd have a conversation about you know, how many members we thought would die that year and which members would, would need the most support. Thankfully, in 1996, they came up with the right combination of drugs for HIV called highly active antiretroviral therapy, or HART. That did stop the mortality in many cases. And thankfully, since then, the majority of those with HIV have been able to live healthily with, with the condition. But it was an appalling period of time up to then because we just had an increasing death toll. 
you had the compensation tribunal going on, then you had the Lindsay tribunal, and in fairness to society, you were up to speed with everything. And they were on top of it, like they were hounding the government because they knew the damage that was after being done. And the public didn't know the damage that was done to families. And when that was happening as well, there was a lot of negativity out there for me and Felix because they were all saying, oh, look at them people, they're after getting compensation for blood products and look at them, they're living life. But they had no idea actually what was going on behind the scenes. Like, we couldn't get life insurance, couldn't buy a house, couldn't get a mortgage. And so, like, give me my health any day of the week, have the money back. <laughs> Can I say that? No. <laughs> Yeah. I think the camaraderie among the team, the nurses, the doctors, the porters, the support staff and the patients themselves, there was a special tightness there that I don't think I felt in any hospital ever since. It was a privilege to work with these people. I still remember many, I can see their faces. I learned so much about HIV and AIDS and the insidious illness that it is creeping up on them, stealing too many young lives. The most awful things and the saddest thing and the thing that, that stays with me is looking at other mothers my age with sons the same age as my sons and they never got to grow up and have the families my sons have. Brian O'Mahony and Rosemary Daly from the IHS wanted to ensure the Lindsay Tribunal wasn't an academic exercise. It had to ensure the membership and those affected by HIV and hepatitis C were at the heart of it. Here's Paul Cunningham again. The worst part of covering the Lindsay Tribunal was the same thing that made it incredible, which was listening to the testimony of people who had been treated badly. Some people came in and they were so nervous about their identity being revealed, that the tribunal erected a screen around them so you could just hear their voice. And it just got me the very idea that something so horrific would happen, that you would get HIV stroke AIDS as a result of a medical product, and that 20 years later, your family was still so affected by it that they would have to be giving evidence behind screens. And you could hear someone uh, from time to time crying as they retold their story, and the screen just made it that so much worse because the horror of that time in the late 1980s, early 1990s was still alive today. The need to find out what went wrong, the need to ensure that what went wrong couldn't happen again, gave a drive to the proceedings. This wasn't an academic exercise. There were people out there who needed answers and that repeated itself all the way through the tribunal. Paul who reported on the tribunal on an almost daily basis for more than a year, recalls two testimonies in particular, that of Rosemary Daly's for the details she shared on the remarkable and completely selfless home care service they provided, which you've heard about already, and Brian O'Mahony's, who, of all people, appeared to be almost on trial. Brian O'Mahony had done such incredible work to try and assist this community. So one of the things he was doing was standing in a car park in St. James's Hospital to ensure that people with haemophilia who had just been diagnosed with HIV 
would bump into him in the car park where he'd have the boot open and he would give them condoms so that when they're engaging in sexual activity, they're able to protect their partner. But the amazing thing was, was that condoms were banned by the state. So this was an illegal action which he was doing to protect lives. This was a person who was prepared to go to any length to be able to assist them. And what was interesting in the terms of the tribunal was that I think Brian was in the chair for about two or three days where he was the witness. And the blood bank and treating doctors, legal professionals on their behalf, were asking lots of questions of him about his state of knowledge and whether the community would have known certain risks and therefore that would ameliorate the responsibility of the blood bank, of the hospitals, of the doctors. He was really put to the pin of his collar. I think he acquitted himself really well and it just seemed ironic to me that the person who'd probably done the most or one of the people who'd done the most to assist the community now seemed to be on the back foot. The Lindsay Tribunal has accused the state's blood transfusion service of serious failure in the way it dealt with one of its blood products, Factor 9. The Tribunal published its final report this afternoon. The Irish Haemophilia Society and the Minister, Micheál Martin, welcomed the report's publication. However, the inquiry chairwoman, Judge Alison Lindsay, said the report would not be referred to the Director of Public Prosecutions. M. O'Kelly reports. According to remember the coming Irish out around lunchtime and there was hundreds of pages and I was trying to do a story for the one o'clock news and, and the entire report was all over a floor and I was trying to grapple bits and pieces. The government said it accepted the report and would go on to implement them. The problem was that the people most directly affected by it were not happy with the report, either in the fact that it didn't look at what happened in the United States or, in their view, it didn't go far enough in apportioning blame for what had gone wrong. Frankly, the the recommendations were a bit vague, uh, but we used them very effectively, in my view, because as a result of that, uh, we established a National Haemophilia Council on a statutory basis in 2004. And in 2002, we established a Haemophilia Product Selection and Monitoring Advisory Board. And that, that tender board has been probably the most successful haemophilia procurement model in the world since then. For the first time, the general public understood what our community had gone through, had a sense of sympathy in relation to that, and the government apology and subsequent compensation afterwards really brought closure, to some people at least. In my view, the Lindsay Tribunal was very necessary and overdue. I think it's a dilemma when we look at tribunals of inquiry about what the expectations are. Often there can be very high expectations about what can be achieved from, you know, this will bring justice, this will bring closure, this will bring accountability. Whether the government takes it up and whether the institutions reform in the way in which the people affected would like to see, in my experience, it's never 100% happiness all the way. But what I observed, and I think the society was very good at, is they were then at the centre of decision-making and they should have been in there from the start. I think if we learnt nothing from the contamination episodes is it's not just a medical issue, it's very much a human issue, but also the state has responsibility for the health and safety of patients in the health system. This is not just a local situation, it's transnational, it's global. What happens in the States in terms of blood collection matters to a person with haemophilia in Ireland. And we ignore that at our peril. Um, Our laws only extend so far to that protection. So vigilance, being proactive, being precautionary for people with haemophilia is vital because we never want this to happen again. It's my personal belief that the state failed 
the hemophilia community by not taking legal action against the pharmaceutical companies in the United States who are responsible for making these products. It's clear from the documentary I made, from the documentation which is available from other legal cases in the United States, that these companies engaged in practices which were simply wrong. To a certain extent, therefore, you've got two stories. A story of the future which is bright and a story of the past which is dark, which still has not been given the answers it needs and the loss, the massive loss, is still there today. And I guess those of us who worked there, you kind of block it out. (laughs) It's too hard to think about. You don't want to remember. And yet, I think we should remember. This is the outcome, you know, if we don't take more action to prevent new infections. In Ireland since the mid-1980s, nearly 10,000 people have been diagnosed with HIV. And in recent years, averaging six to 800 new infections diagnosed annually. Two diagnoses every day yesterday, today, tomorrow, in Ireland. That's too, too many. This was like going through a war. This was a cumulative trauma to the whole community and it has brought the community very, very, very close together. Of the 106 people with haemophilia who got HIV, there are only about 30 still alive. So there was a huge number of deaths in, in the community. But there's also tremendous resilience in the community. So when you're facing these kind of challenges and these risks and these uncertainties and you still have to take the treatment, then you sink or swim. You have to become resilient. You have to deal with this. You have to learn about it. You have to self-advocate. At some point in time, no matter how good the health service is, you're going to come across a doctor or a hospital who don't know what they're doing and they will insist that they do. In terms of the future, the last six or seven years have seen a phenomenal improvement in treatment. We have new factor concentrates which last much longer, which give greater protection. We have subcutaneous injections, which can now be rather than intravenous. They can take them once a week or once every two weeks. And we have three people with haemophilia in Ireland currently on a clinical trial for gene therapy. So that could well turn out to be a functional cure for haemophilia. So the last six or seven years have been a tremendous explosion of hope and new therapies and new possibilities. A child born now in Ireland with haemophilia will have a normal life expectancy and normal quality of life. So I I think there's great hope has come from that, if you like, from the ashes of all that tragedy. What we've learned is advocacy is the philosophy. You have to advocate for what you believe in, you have to advocate for what you want, uh, and you have to push uh, until you reasonably get what you want and don't take no for an answer. Certainly don't take no for an answer the first nine times. I'm on extended half-life factor 9 at the moment, which means I only have to do an injection once every two weeks now, which means my veins get a break. Hallelujah. What came out of the Lindsay Tribunal, the National Centre in Dublin, the facilities in St James's, and the centres around the country, that's all down to the Lindsay Tribunal. And that's all down to the Hemophilia Society as well. So it's all good. All good, and it's nice to think of what's after coming out of the dark days because for young people with haemophilia or any bleeding disorders now, the future has never looked so bright. For anyone affected by this story, you can find support on hivireland.ie and from the Irish Haemophilia Society on haemophilia.ie. This documentary was made by Kelly Crichton and funded by Commission Naman with a television licence fee. For more documentaries, visit Newstalk.com.